The title for this evening's talk is Occupy Ourselves. The credit for this title should go to a man I've never met called Jason Stern, who's a publisher of a magazine of the Hudson Valley called Chronogram. Freely distributed, interesting, commercial too. A few months ago, Stern wrote an article in the magazine, in Chronogram, in praise of the Occupy Wall Street movement. And in that article, he invite us, invited us to extend that occupation inside ourselves. In doing so, he said, we would empower the totality of who we are to take charge of our lives. Instead of just that tiny portion encapsulated by me. impressed me. So I, I sent a letter to the editor of Chronogram saying I would like to borrow that expression of Stern as a title for my next talk, which is exactly what I'm doing now. The, the central point of my talk, which chimes in with what Stern wrote, is that what goes out in the outer world is mirrored by what goes on inside us, and vice versa. In the outer world, the leading financial institutions typified by Wall Street, symbolized by Wall Street, have taken over, have occupied coercively our livelihood. Movements like Occupy Wall Street aim at traversing that, at taking this power away from the financial elites, elites and re-empowering us, the ordinary people. Much the same goes on in our own inner world. Whether I, the ego, the me, has taken over, has coercively occupied the theater of our inner lives. Then the call to occupy ourselves aims at reversing that at taking power away from the ego and re-empowering the whole of who we are. The talk is an expansion of that, starting with Occupy Wall Street. Very briefly, of course, you probably 
all of you have heard of Occupy Wall Street, but still, let me just encapsulate it and, and um, emphasize some features of it. Wall Street, of course, stands for the international world of finance, which is run by a handful of insiders who are thus in control of the livelihoods of the billions of us. Last September, in order to question this situation, a large number of people began gathering at Sukoti Park, around the corner from Wall Street. The coming together was facilitated by the social media, the internet, and things like that, and they called themselves, as we all know, the Occupy Wall Street. In the following month, the numbers grew dramatically. They even camped out in tents. They set up areas for eating, for medical care. They created a library. In fact, they developed a rich community life out there on the park and surrounding areas. Several times they were forcibly evacuated by the police and they responded each time non-violently and yet persisting in the occupation of the park or adjacent areas. When winter came and the police prevented them from camping at night and eventually kicked them out of the park, kept them out of the park, the movement had to renounce that particular park, but not its activism. It continued its campaign in a non-territorial mode, occupying public, public consciousness, occupying the communal space of participatory democracy. Their leading slogan was and still is, we are the 99%. Implying that they are, that we are all under, under the rule of a so-called 1%. The program of the 1% can be easily defined. The 1% would not disagree with that. With the pursuit of power and money, which are, of course, forms of greed. However, defining the aspirations of the 99% is much more elusive. This, of course, presents a lot of difficulty for anyone who wishes to stereotype the movement. But for me, the heterogeneity of the movement is a fundamental asset, not a hindrance. I'm also touched by the fact that a number of traits of the movement that resonate very deeply with the Buddhist teachings. Let me just go over that briefly. It's particularly 
the Four Noble Truths that I'm talking about. Let's take a look. The first truth says there is suffering. Implying that until we allow ourselves to feel the, the full grief and suffering that afflicts us, we cannot deal with it. Occupy Wall Street goes there, gets in touch with his grief. And, and does so by highlighting that the 99% are being exploited by the 1%. We, we could know it, but uh, uh, the movement reminds us this is a major feature of our lives. The second truth follows from the first having allowed ourselves to feel this suffering directly, including in the case of Sukhoi Park, they're coping with the police brutality, which was there at times, we are open to investigate. We need to investigate where it comes from. And clearly, it comes from clinging and greed, from the greed of the 1%, for sure. But also from the greed that permeates all our culture. The third truth, followed from the second, if we drop the clinging, if we allow vulnerability to be, then the suffering becomes just discomfort. Like the discomfort of camping out and dealing with the police. The teaching allows to all oh, 99% and 1%. Although the signs displayed at the park in the last few months referred mostly to the greed of the 1%. For instance, there were signs saying, end greed. No need for corporate greed. And this more sophisticated one, a healthy world does not depend on a growing economy. Okay, what about the fourth truth, the Buddha's fourth noble truth? It is about how to, how to bring, bring an end to, to greed. And for that, the Buddha invited us to practice wisdom, morality, and meditation. Occupy Wall Street extends a similar invite to its participant. Here are some signs. No to universal warfare. Another sign, the people are finally coming together. It has to do with wisdom and morality, indeed. Even there were signs inviting participants to practice wisdom and morality within, within themselves. Here's one. We must disarm our will, we must disarm ourselves on the inside before we can disarm ourselves on the outside. 
the implementation of the four, fourth noble truth went well beyond the statements. For instance, there was a hands-on exploration of participatory democracy in the course of the General Assemblies, where decisions were reached by consensus, that is, horizontally. In fact, the process of reading, reaching the decision was far more important, mattered much more than the decision itself. And then there was what came to be called as the people's mic or human microphone or mic check. You may have heard of that too, but let me just go over quickly. One, if one person wanted to address the crowd, he or she would speak aloud one sentence at the time and those who were around the initial speaker then would repeat that word in a chorus fashion and so spread that word around. But not only, the important thing is not only that the word got spread, but also it got internalized by each one who repeated it. So that there was both a spreading out of the message, but also spreading inside the people who repeated it. Another way of imp implementing the Fourth Noble Truth was, of course, the library. There was a library full of books of all kinds. And finally, very significantly, at Sukhodi Park, there was an area that became a meditation area where a Sangha would go and sit in silent meditation. What matters in all of this, of course, is not just a development of this or that technique, but the willingness of those who were at the park to bypass the mold of the old structures, structures which actually block the way to democracy. The audacity to exploring new ways of coming together to guide our communities. Last week, and on PBS station TV, I watched, maybe, maybe some of you have too, Bill Moyer's program. In that program, he interviewed a former British diplomat, a charming fellow, called Con Ross. Ross had resigned from his post after a brilliant career because he understood that the needed solutions cannot and will not ever come from the elites, like the elite that he was embedded in. 
he was part of the one percent, of course. Here's uh, something that Conroe says in an article he wrote in The Nation. It's a recent article, February this year. As a diplomat in the British Foreign Service, I served deep inside one bastion of conventional politics, the world of international diplomacy. I helped propagate top-down, government-dominated politics across the world, including Iraq, Afghanistan, and Kosovo. I resigned because my government, British government, ignored available alternatives to violence. And he goes on further down. A new politics is needed. And in the early weeks of Occupy Wall Street, I saw signs of this emergence. Some would say the Occupy protests... Uh, Sorry, some would see the Occupy protesters yet more evidence of disorder, not a solution. But to my jaded eye, the beacons pointing to a better method were bright indeed. At the UN Security Council and other diplomatic forums, I had taken part in high-stakes negotiation on everything from Iraqi weapons, weapons of mass destruction to Palestine, to the future of the Balkans. But the experience of hundreds of people listening to the voice of one, anyone, through the people's mic, moved me more than any of those world, worldly negotiations. And he goes on. The pathetic human need for a complete explanatory system needs to be resisted. For no theory can offer a full account of a world that is already massively and yet also increasingly complex. Where any event from a destruction of a job to war is a subject of countless factor, factors, all in constant, dynamic interaction. We hunger for a detailed map of the world, but the best we can hope for is a general understanding of a new dispensation, complexity. And complexity does not demand management management by authorities. It is instead best influenced by individual agents acting by themselves at first, then with others carrying the potential to affect the whole system. This then is the new politics for a disorderly world. The defenders of the status quo claim that only the methods can maintain order. They are, in fact, achieving the opposite. 
the politics proposed here and already evident in Occupy and elsewhere can foment a deeper order where people are connected to one another, reweaving our tattered social fabric, where work is fulfilling and responsible, and where everyone in society is given the proper voice and the interests are accounted for. I find it fascinating that Ross had been a member of the 1%, and yet this did not get in the way of his wisdom. Thank God. Offend the Buddha or whatever. <laughs> this is something that Occupy Wall Street understand in part because it includes a number of ex-1%ers among its ranks. As a, said, as a sign set at Sukhodi Park, the 99% includes cops. Uh, cops, of course, who are at times also part of the 1%. But they can see if there's some room for that and that brings me to another extraordinary person by the name of Norm Stamper he was the head of the Seattle Police Department in 1999 during the protests against the WTO the World Trade Organization meeting it was Tamper who gave the orders to unleash the brutal repression against the protesters at that time. You, you may remember. Of course, the protesters are blamed for everything. Sure. But now, interestingly enough, he has repented for what he did. And this is what he wrote recently. He's describing what happened in 1999 in Seattle. We have to clear the intersection, said the field commander. We have to clear the intersection, said the operations commander, agreeing, from his bunker in the public safety building. Standing alone on the edge of the crowd, I... That's what Stamper says. The chief of police said to myself, we have to clear the intersection. Why? Well, because of all the what ifs. What if a fire breaks out in the Sheraton across the street? What if a woman goes into labor on the 17th floor of the hotel? What if a heart patient goes into cardiac arrest in the high-rise on the corner? What if there's a stabbing, a shooting, a serious injury, traffic accident? How would an aid car, fire engine, 
engine or police crews get through that sea of people. The cop on me supported the decision to clear the intersection. But the chief on me should have vetoed it. And he certainly would have forbidden the indiscriminate use of tear gas to accomplish it, no matter how many warnings we barked through the bullhorn. My support for a militaristic solution caused all hell, hell to break loose. Rocks, bottles, and newspapers, uh, newspaper racks went flying. Windows were smashed, stores were looted, fires lighted, and more gas filled the street, with some cops clearly overreacting, escalating and prolong prolonging the conflict. The Battle of Seattle, as the WTO protests and the aftermath came to be known, was a huge setback for the protesters, for my cops, for the community. The counterproductive response to 9-11, in which the federal government began providing military equipment and training even for the smallest rural departments has fueled the militarization of police forces. Everyday polices, policing is characterized by a SWAT mentality. Every other 911 call a military mission. What emerges is a picture of a vital public safety institution perpetually at war with its own people. Assuming the necessity of radical structural reforms, how do we proceed? By building a progressive police organization created by rank and file officers, civilian employees and community representatives. Such an effort would include plans to flatten hierarchies, create a true citizen review board with investigative and subpoena powers, and ensure community participation in all operations, including policy making, program development, priority setting, and crisis management. In short, cops and citizens would forge an authentic partnership in policing the city. I was very impressed, particularly because where it came from. Okay, so much then for the outer Occupy movement. The time has come now to examine how the teachers of the Occupy movement play out inside ourselves. I'd like to introduce the second part of my talk with a sign. A sign that replicates one of used by the occupiers at Sukhoti Park. And it says... Nothing very surprising. We are the 
percent. But the, the nice thing about this sign is that it's written on both sides. So as I show it to you, I read my side. And my side says, I'm the 99% of me. I'm the 99% of me. Meaning, I'm not just the self-conceited 1% of me. I mean, it's something that myself and many others have to learn. It's not automatic. We've got to actually learn. So, how do we show up for this 99% of each one of us? How do we show up for the rest of the person? How do we show up for show up at our inner Sukkoti Park? Well, surely the answer to that Basically, it's not that difficult for you to know. We simply meditate. That's what meditation is about. Going in and connecting with the whole of us. Not to revisit our life once again through the narratives that 1% has prescribed for us, our inner 1% has prescribed for us, which, which are different for each one of us, but they have a certain commonality too. That's what happens when we get lost in thoughts. We go, we go back to that place that we've been trained into. No, we need to come to visit our inner lives directly, unfiltered, both in its apparent chaos and its fundamental simplicity. In other words, meditation gets us off the high horse of the ego and gets us to engage with life as it is. And, and again, this path resonates very definitely with the Buddha's Four Noble Truths, actually. That's why the Buddha formulated the Four Noble Truths, so that we could find that path for ourselves. First truth invites us to acknowledge our suffering whenever or wherever it crosses our path. The second truth invites us to recognize the source of our suffering. And very clearly, as the Buddha said in similar words, it's our ego clinging to the pursuit of fame and success. Third truth follows from the second. And that clinging 
and suffering comes to an end, at least in its most grievous self-inflicted aspect. Fourth truth, if the above awareness is not sufficient to put an end to the old egocentric patterns, then the fourth truth offers us the training that can help us get out of them. And again, that practice includes the practice of meditation, of wisdom, and morality. Meditation, as I said, is showing up our, at our inner Sukhori Park. In trying to do so, of course, we have to confront our own resistance, our own one percent, our inner Mayor Bloomberg and his police and his pepper spray. Sure, we know that too. There's all this resistance sometimes to the practice. Don't go there. I have so much, many better things to do, like, you know, fantasize about your next vacation, whatever. Forget about being with a breath. Okay, meditation. Wisdom can also be your guide. Of course, sometimes wisdom comes from reading the the sutras or, or... any, anything else that uh, is enlightened. At other times, wisdom can come from listening to ourselves or to others. Morality is a very significant aspect of our practice. And I won't go into too many aspects, but let me just mention one, which is the practice of loving kindness, also called metta in Pali. Basically, though some of you know about it, others might not, basically the practice of loving kindness is one in which one recites to oneself silently and slowly a series of phrases wishing happiness to oneself or to others. One can say silently, of course, to oneself, may I be happy, or may you be happy, or may somebody else be happy. Let's use you. May you be happy. May you be free from danger. May you have ease of well-being. Key to this practice is after reciting each sentence, uh, of course, uh, to oneself, pausing and, and, and feeling the reverberations of that inside oneself. How, how what has been said, may, I be, may you be happy or may you be free from danger. Listening to the echoes that resonate from the various parts of myself as I say that. 
from the whole crowd of who I am as I say that. Isn't that the same thing as the human microphone at Sukkoti Park? Well, you know, those who repeat listen to the reverberations of the words that they are repeating. Okay. So, in many ways, with a variety of techniques, just as in Sukkoti Park, in our inner Sukkoti Park, meditation breaks the mold of the mental structures we have been trapped into. (coughs) Notwithstanding the resistance of the old, notwithstanding the the pepper spray that our own 1% may shower on, and so on. Notwithstanding the hindrances created by the inner police, which tries to bring our practice into disarray. And yet, in the end, we come to the realization that this inner 1%, this our own ego self is not an enemy, but simply a misguided configuration of mind. And one that is susceptible to change, and by golly, I have seen it change inside myself, and I'm sure many of you have too. Different degrees of change. It's susceptible to change very much like Norm Stamper, the former chief of the Seattle Police Department. And so let us summon our inner Norm Stamper, who has learned from his mistake to come to a rescue in the practice. So let me summarize what I've been talking about. I could do it in a very simple phrase, you know. What goes on inside us is very much like what goes on outside. I like to finish with a quote from Grace Boggs. I don't know who you heard of her. I've seen her in, in programs like Amy Goodman's program. It's a 96-year-old, sorry, 96-year young woman um, who has been an activist all her life, or most of her life, you know, since young. And she said recently in an interview, most people think of revolution as taking power from somebody else. I think of revolution as transformation of ourselves. In the language I've used today, we could rephrase Grace Boggs' statement by saying, that revolution 
that true revolution involves the occupation of ourselves, involves <coughs> taking the power away from our own 1%. <coughs> Let's do it. Let's sit in silence for in silence for Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.